Welcome to the Christian Combatives Monday Megasode. The purpose of these Megasodes is to mirror all of the YouTube and Rumble content up on the podcast. All the audio is preserved and presented here in its original and sometimes substandard form as it appeared in the video from start to finish, music included. The titles of these videos are listed in the podcast description. Today's episode includes Like Simeon, You Can Hold the Flesh of God, Marriage and Your Body, My Body, My Choice, Save Yourselves, You Can't, and Speaking in Tongues. Enjoy. The Gospel reading for this Sunday comes from the Gospel account of Luke. In this Gospel account, he talks about Mary, Joseph, and Jesus going to the temple and interacting with Simeon. Now, Mary had to go for purification purposes, Jesus to be blessed, and uh, because of these laws of God, it's explained in the text and more in the Old Testament. Anyways, they interact with Simeon there, and Simeon says a bunch of stuff. And a bunch of stuff that he says, and it's all very profound. Uh, he begins talk. He well, he talks about the world and Mary, and a sword will pierce her heart. Uh, and he talks about what Jesus will do, and he's a salvation, and all these other things, which are very, very wonderful. But one of the things that he says at the very beginning is he glorifies God that he's able to see, see the salvation, see Jesus, the Messiah, the the Christ, hold him in the flesh, uh, and that. He, He's ready to depart. Lord, now you are letting me depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation. And this, in particular, this is called the Song of Simeon, or the Nuc Dimittis. And it shows up in the liturgy, the Lutheran liturgy, uh, often after communion, after the Lord's Supper, after the pastor um, uh, um, puts the communion vessels away on the altar, uh, covers them up and, and, and tidies them up and closes the, the table. And everybody is departed from the table and they sing the Nuc Dimittis. Why? Why do they sing the Nuc Dimittis? Why there? Why is it important that Simeon says this thing? What does it confess? Simeon was informed beforehand by the Holy Spirit that he would be able to see the Messiah before he dies, before he before he's taken away to heaven. Now he's again he's an he's an older guy, he's an elderly man, uh, so he knows that his his time is coming soon. And in walk Mary and Joseph with with this Christ child, with this Jesus, and he knows that Jesus is this Messiah, is the salvation of the world, and he rejoices. Glory be to God that that his eyes are able to perceive the salvation of the world. And more than that, more than just being able to see this Christ as from a distance, he's able to physically, tangibly hold on to the salvation of the world, hold on to this fully God, fully man, Christ child, this Messiah. This is something that he rejoices to God for. You know, thanks be to God that he was able to do this. And just as God promised, he was. So he glorifies God for keeping his promise. And he says, basically, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. There's nothing more I have to see. What could possibly compare in the rest of his life to being able to hold the creator of the universe in his hands, to be able to hold the salvation of the universe tangibly, physically in his own hands? What a wonderful thing that he was able to do. And this is where he says his, his new diminis, his, his song, song of Simeon. And it's, it's a beautiful text for funerals as well. Because 
using Simeon's confession at a funeral, the Christian, or on behalf of the Christian, uh, the Christian confesses that they're prepared. They are able to depart in peace. The Christian doesn't have to fear death because when he dies, he departs in peace. Or she dies, you depart in peace. Everything has been done. The salvation of the world has already been won and the forgiveness of sins has already been applied to their account. They are confessing with the nook diminis that they can depart in peace. There's nothing more. They don't have to do anything. They don't have to wait for God to do anything more. They're at peace. What do they care? They get to go home to, to, to be with God, to be, with, to be at the side of the Father now. It's a peaceful, joyous thing. As much as it, as it is a tragedy to lose a loved one, from their perspective, it's all joy because from here on out, it, it only gets better in heaven. Now, if this is a great confession for funerals, why do we have it at the Lord's Supper, after the Lord's Supper, on services, divine services? There's a couple of reasons. Now, first, it's now you're letting your servant depart in peace. First, they're departing, the, the Christians who sing this are departing from the table, the, the, the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to get into that in a second. Second, there are, it's, it's near the end of the service. They're probably going to be departing church. They're going to go on to the rest of their week. They're going to be departing the, you know, the immediate fellowship of the saints. Uh, they're able to depart in peace. And third, they're confessing that if they are to die, if they are to be called home by God at any point, immediately or predictably, that they can do so at peace because they know that their salvation is guaranteed. They know that their sins are forgiven. That's why you have it out there in the service. But it gets better than that. It gets better than that because the parallels between Simeon and the person receiving communion go so far as to what the person is actually holding. This is why it's so important to regard the words of Scripture as true. Because God says, this is my body, this is my blood, and we have to take him for, it, for his word. Even if we don't understand necessarily how it's his body, how it's his blood, it truly is. So the person at communion, when they receive the Lord's Supper, that, that thing that they receive, as much as it, as it is the body of Christ, as much as it is bread, both are present, as much as it is the blood of Christ, as much as it is wine, both are present, they're able to hold the body of Christ in their hands, just like Simeon. They're able to hold the flesh of the creator of the universe in their hands, just like Simeon. They're able to drink the blood that flowed from the side of Christ on the cross, like all Christians who have communion. It's this beautiful thing where the parallel is, yes, Simeon got to hold the very creator of the universe, the Christ child, the Messiah, true God, true man. And so do you when you have the Lord's Supper, when you tangibly hold or when you receive the Lord's Supper to your mouth, that is a tangible, physical connection between you and God. Christians surely should be commended for their faith in the things that they cannot see. But in the sacraments, God gives you a special, tangible connection to something. When you receive the Lord's Supper, you're saying, okay, well, it's December 26th. It's 1045 in the morning. I am at this physical, geographical, specific location on a map, receiving in my hand the body of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I know that by eating it with faith, I receive the forgiveness of sins and a replenishment, a, a, a feeding of my faith. 
Now, later on in the week, they're tormented by some sin. The devil whispers in their ear, well, God's not going to forgive you for that. God didn't forgive you for that sin. You should feel bad for that sin last week. And they can spit back in the face of the devil, spit back in the face of the devil with the true words of saying, I was forgiven of my sins. I had physical communion with the creator of the universe. He forgave me my sins at 1045 in the morning, uh, December 26th, at this specific location. There were witnesses. This, this physical, tangible reality of the sacraments, whether it's the Lord's Supper where you can hold or you can taste and, and you physically receive the body and blood of Christ, whether it's baptism where you can feel that water placed on your, uh, on your head, you can feel that water that's placed on the, on the head of other children, that baptismal font often has water in it, you can touch that water and say, yes, that was a thing that was applied to me, the forgiveness of sins. Or even with absolution as a confession, an absolution as a sacrament, when the pastor says the words of Christ, I forgive you all your sins. And the devil cannot say, you weren't forgiven, because you know you were. That water, that, that, that bread, that wine, these tangible elements, that audible sound, depending on how you define sacrament, let's not get into it, that audible sound of you are forgiven all your sins, trumps any doubt. You are free to live without doubt because you know for a fact that these things happen. Better yet, there's witnesses too who can t attest to the same thing. This is why having public baptisms, having baptisms with the rest of the church is so fantastic. Recording the date of the baptism because guess what? Now there are eyewitnesses that your sins are washed away. The name of God is placed on you and you're brought into his family. In the Lord's Supper, again, there are eyewitnesses and you physically, tangibly touch the bread and the wine. Even in private confession and absolution, the pastor knows for a fact that you were absolved of your sins and you heard it out loud. So did anyone else who was within range, who hopefully not too many people. So this is why it's so important. Not just the Song of Simeon, which confesses all of these things that we have touched the body of Christ and we are now ready to depart in peace because God has done everything that we need for salvation, but also that the that the, that the Lord's Supper, that the communion is actually, as God says in the Bible, the actual, actual real body and blood of Christ. That we are actually in communion. We, like Simeon, have physically, tangibly made a connection with the God of the universe. And we can recall that incident. It's not just a story of somebody else that happened, you know, thousands of years ago, but it's something that happened to you, for you. Take, eat, this is the very body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, given for who? For you, for the forgiveness of all of your sins. So every time you receive the absolution, every time you receive the body and blood of Christ, every time you read or sing the song of Simeon, the Nuc Diminis, you are confessing these things. You are rejoicing in God along with all the other saints. What a wonderful thing that God is still God with us, is still Emmanuel, that he will be with us even until the end of the age in a very real sense. God bless. Have a very Christmas. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands. Hey, that sounds pretty patriarchal, don't you think? <laughs> yes, let's get into it.
Can you believe it? Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 that wives should submit to their husband. The audacity, the gall, the utter <laughs> temerity of Paul to insist that wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Well, let's be fair. So Paul writes this instruction and he talks about, you know, wives should submit to their husbands and, and honor them and obey them. And then he writes commands for the husband that are like four times as long. So wives have a specific role, a specific, a specific place that they fit in the relationship. And husbands have a different place. And the role of the husband is to lead the wife. But that does not then mean that the wife is worth less than the husband just because she doesn't get to be in the driver's seat. And in fact, the analogy that's used is the head and the body. That's what, it's, that's what Paul uses to talk about this, the head and the body. He says, the husband is the head and the wife is the body. And you can make all sorts of extrapolations from this. You can say, well, that's because the husband, as the, as the head, <laughs> directs where the body's going to go. But the husband, as the head, also needs to understand the needs of the body. And he says, for nobody hated his own body. He talks about how husbands should love their wives and should rule their wives. And this isn't in a way of a despot or, or a tyrant or somebody who just uh, abuses or neglects their wife. This isn't what, what, what's being talked about here in Ephesians. And Paul describes it as somebody and their own body. Nobody hated their own body. This isn't something where, um, where your body is starving of thirst and you, as the head, as the consciousness, you're like, ah, <laughs> good, good, I'm in charge and you should starve or you should be thirsty or whatever. No, the, the idea that the head is in charge of the body also includes this idea that the head is supposed to protect the body in the sense that it's supposed to, to, make, to make choices that benefit the body as though they are one united unit. And that's ultimately what the thing is. That's ultimately what the analogy is about. Likewise, the body has these specific tasks, the roles to be subservient to the head, to do what the brain commands to stay out of trouble, to stay out of danger, and to use its power to support, like the shoulders and the neck, to support the head, to direct the head around like the, like the body. The body carries around the head on its shoulders. So it's not that one is more important than the other, they just have different tasks, they have different roles to fulfill. So you can say, oh, it's a patriarchal system. It's bigoted and it's intolerant and it's not fair. Well, nobody said it's supposed to be fair. The body's different than the head. Men are different from women. And I hate to break it to you if this is the first time you've heard that, but it's true. Men and women aren't the same and a husband and a wife do not have the same roles in a relationship. They're not interchangeable. The husband cannot bear children and the wife she cannot do the role of the husband, which usually means to lead and direct the family. Now, this doesn't mean that the wife shouldn't work. I mean, you can read, uh, what is it, Proverbs? I don't remember what it was. Uh, where it's talking about this woman, you know, a precious woman who can find one like this. Uh, and and she's, she's out, she's making clothes for all her children and selling, selling the, the, you know, the, selling things at the, uh, at the market and all these other things. It's not saying that the, the wife shouldn't work in terms of industry, but it's saying that Ultimately, the husband is responsible for the well-being of the wife. 
and responsible for his own well-being as well, I suppose. And the wife's role is ultimately to submit and support the husband. They should work together as a team. Now, this role of husband and wife, this gets even trickier when you try to have relationships that don't have those roles in them. And an example of this is when a man and a woman are living together and they aren't married. The husband is not connected to the wife in the same way, the same permanent status that he would be if they were married. They have become one flesh, perhaps. They maybe have had that one flesh union in bed, but that doesn't then mean that the husband is going to direct the rest of his life to taking care of the wife. That's one of the reasons that marriage is so important. It's a lifelong commitment. So when you have a husband and a wife, or when you have a man and a woman, rather, and the man is with a woman, and then the man is with another woman, the man is with another woman, or the woman is with another man, a woman is with another man, a woman is with another man, it's like a body that rips its head off and puts a new head on, and then just, just waits long enough for the, for the, for the, the flesh and the, the bones and the, and the tendons and muscle to stitch together, and then rips it off again and then puts on another one. This is doing violence to both the body and the head every time a body and a head are united and ripped away. Now, this is whether it's a man and a woman getting together and not being married or in divorce. And yes, maybe divorce is just one person's fault. In fact, a lot of times it is. But it's still painful. It's still something that shouldn't be glorified and shouldn't be thought of as neutral. It's something that's, that's horrible and tragic and, and, and does damage, does violence to the body and the head, does violence to the, to the husband and the wife. And if, if, if I wanted to make this video even more controversial, we can talk about the alternative attempts to, to make an alternative union to what, what God instituted with a husband and a wife. If you try to have two husbands, like trying to have two heads, and then you, you, you stitch them together, you're, you know, and you're Frankenstein's monster over here, you're just stitching body parts together that don't go together. You stitch two heads together and they have no, they have no support. They have no body to carry them around, no, no lungs to, to give them oxygen or, or heart to pump blood. Or you have two women and you try to make a marriage out of two, two bodies instead of a body and a head. And then you've got nothing, you've got no direction. You've got, it's not designed to work that way. God didn't design it to work this way. It isn't that God just arbitrarily said, oh, well... I don't care if you love, you know, you're a guy and you love another guy. I don't want you to be married because I'm a big, mean God. Hmm. It's nothing like that. It's that God knows how he designed men and women to be. They're complementary. The woman is not redundant. Neither is the man redundant. If you're going to say that you can stitch two heads together or two bodies together, then either the body or the head is redundant. So which is it? Are husbands redundant or are wives redundant? Which, which is useless? Which is not necessary at all? So in addition to it being a, a, a moral travesty, um, it's also something that's just, it's, it's painful, it's damaging, it's harmful to the people who are involved in that. And God knew what he was doing when he made men and women. He knew what he was doing. He knew when he made them complementary. When he took, he took man and he took, he took the rib out of man and then reunited it with man as, as a wife in marriage, Adam and Eve, uh, he knew what he was doing, that he was uniting these two parts of a greater whole. So Ephesians 5, you've got, these, you've got this message to the women, you've got this message to the men, to wives and to husbands. You've got another reminder that God designed them male and female and the two shall, shall be one flesh. 
And it's ultimately a picture of a greater, of a greater reality. The marriage, so the body and the head is a picture of marriage. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. This is a picture of how God loves his people. It's this perfect thing where God is the perfect head of the body of the church. And the church is the perfect wife of Christ, who is the husband, right? It's, it's all of these analogies point to this relationship between God and his people. God perfectly knows what's best for his people, and he sacrifices for his people, as you've seen on the cross. He also leads his people in the right direction. Like, the, like a, head, a, a head that knows everything and knows what's best for the body, Christ leads his church around. So when God says, this is good, this is good, that's bad, don't do that, that's bad, don't do that, the body shouldn't be in rebellion to the head. The people of, of God shouldn't be in rebellion to God. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any more sense than if your head were to turn one way and your body were to turn the other direction and you tried to go in two different directions at the same time. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. If you're going to be connected to Christ, if you're going to be connected to God, then you have to, you have to know that your role is to, to submit to God's authority. This means that when God says, this is right to do, this is wrong to do, that you have to agree with that even if you don't like it. There may be some places in the Bible, some verses in the Bible, where you just, it doesn't jive with, you know, what you were taught, what you grew up with. But that's not your role to decide. It's not. You're the body. You have a very important role. You have a very important role. You have a very important role in the whole, in the entire union with, with the head, with Christ. But it's not your, it's not your place to decide the direction. But, Yeah. That's, that's, kind of, that's kind of a summary of everything that, that goes on in, in Ephesians chapter 5. And there's so much more to get into. It's such a beautiful section. And ultimately, if you read it, don't read it and look at it and say, well, Paul sure had some weird ideas. Because it's not Paul. This is God writing through Paul. Paul even quotes Jesus, and Jesus quotes Genesis. This is a continuous thing. From the beginning of the Bible, all the way through the end of the Bible, there's a continuous understanding of marriage of men and women, of, of Christ and the church. And it's explained more and more over time, but it's the same idea. And that idea is that God, the head of the body of believers, loves his people and died for his people and is willing to sacrifice for his people. And his people in joyful, in joyful gratitude should submit to the, to the head, to the authority that was willing to die on their behalf. Ultimately, it's a gospel message. You don't have to be the head to figure out where, where to go with life. You've already got a perfectly good head on your shoulders, and that head is Christ. So, in all those things, husbands, honor your wives and protect your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as you submit to the Lord. Children of God, submit to God. It's as simple as that. God loves you and he died for you. And look, pizza's just about ready. Let's get some. Take care. The Bible sure says a lot of things about the body. It uses the body as an analogy very often. Well, I have heard a phrase being used from time to time, and it's relevant to Life Sunday. And the phrase is usually... My body, my choice. 
<laughs> oh boy, this video is going to get me in trouble. Hey, that's where the fun is. Let's get into it. My body, my choice. My body, my choice. Now that's definitely a compelling argument because the idea is that you have autonomy. If you know Greek, which of course you do, uh, the word autonomy is a compound word from uh, auto and like auto and namos, which means auto means basically yourself, and namos means a law. So you are a law unto yourself. That means you are in charge of yourself. You are self-sufficient. Uh, everything about you is your own responsibility and your own fault. You should take care of everything about yourself and nobody else should make any decisions regarding yourself. Autonomous. Autonomy. My body, my choice. Well, the phrase my body, my choice is often used to describe a situation where a mother would like to have an abortion. And an abortion, if you look at the biological sort of implications of it, is the ending of a human life in a fetal or embryonic stage. Those are, uh, those are stages of, uh, of development that different animals go through. So a human of a certain, a certain level of development uh, and them, their life being ended forcibly. Now already the idea that it's my body, my choice falls apart unless, of course, children are owned by their parents in such a way that it's your property. Like, you know, if I have, if I've got a nice chair and if I choose to chop it up and burn it, you know, to eat my house, then it's my chair, my choice, right? But the idea is that it's not that it's, it's, it's that the children are the property of, of the parent, but it's rather that the child is actually a, a body part of the parent. And again, going back to the text in 1 Corinthians, you've got this talk about different parts of the body. How different parts of the body, some are, are, are more visible and some are less visible and some are given more positions of honor and some are honored even though they are, uh, you know, they are the ones that are more modest or something like that. And that's talking about, you know, you've got different roles and different people in church. You've got some people are King David and some people are, you know, old Grandma Schmeck and Pepper and she's praying and she's reading her hymns and she's teaching her kids, uh, you know, the catechism and God bless her because she has a very important role as her individual part in, in the body of Christ. Um, David had, King David had his role and she's got her role. But when we get back around to this my body, my choice argument, you start to see that, I mean, biological arguments of the distinction between a mother and the child that's growing within the mother aside, um, even if this was a member, even if this was a vestigial organ of, of the mother, a clump of cells, like an eyelash or a, a, uh, a fingernail that can be clipped or whatever, it, a, a part of the mother's own body that is her own, that is hers, her own, um, you still have the question of, is it her choice? Is it her body, her choice? Well, in terms of the Bible, even her own body isn't her body. Your body was not made by you. I mean, it was made through your parents, but not even technically, I mean, not even by your parents. It was originally your body's from God. So God is the one who created your body. 
God is the one who designed your body and knows how your body is supposed to work. And God is the one who has the authority over your body. This is why you can't just do whatever you want with your body. I mean, abortion aside, I can't take my body and go and steal things. My body, my choice, I'm going to take stuff. Or my body, my choice, I'm going to go kill somebody else. I mean, you can make the argument, well, you're affecting somebody else's body. Irrelevant. I'm using my body. I should be able to do whatever I want with my body because it's my body, my choice, right? But the argument doesn't work because the moral foundation is based on this. And then the moral foundation is that this is not your body to do with whatever, you know, however you please, but rather that your body is a gift. It is a creation of God given to you for you to be a caretaker of and for you to do the right thing with, for you to love your neighbor and to love your enemy and to love God with. So my body, my choice falls apart because it's not your body in the sense that you have total authority over whatever happens with your body. You didn't create your body. You don't uphold, you know, like your body is not a complete creation, a thing of your control. Your body is something that you are given, given to be a good steward over. So it's not your body. Therefore, it's not your choice. It's a body that was given to you it's a body that you were given to take care of. And ultimately, it's a body that fits in like a puzzle piece into the body of Christ. Your body, as glorious and amazing as I'm sure it is, is nothing compared to the greater whole that it, 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 it was built to comprise. Your body may be a studded, jewel-encrusted, gold-fringed whatever, um, but it's a puzzle piece, it's, it's a gear, it's, it's a part of a greater mechanism. It was designed not just to be a standalone thing, but to be part of a greater body. And that body is the body of Christ. That body is Christianity. So if you're not a Christian, that doesn't mean that your life is worthless because you're not a body, part of the body of Christ, but rather that your body was designed to become part of the body of Christ. Your body was designed with that, intend, that, that intended goal, that purpose, that value that is given to all the members of the body of Christ. It says, hey, look, you were designed, you were made, God loves you, God died for you. God wanted you to be part of this greater thing, this thing that you couldn't accomplish. Nobody can accomplish you know, anything as glorious as being God on their own. But you have the opportunity, in fact, you have the, the design, the command, the invitation to be a part of that body of Christ. So ultimately, it's, it's a gospel message, once again, that you are not your own. Your limitations are not the limitations of the glory that you can share in. Rather, you are designed to be a part of something much bigger than yourself. That means you have the support of the other members of the body. You, have, you get to share in their honor and you share in their pain and their suffering. But it's all bigger than just you. It's not all about you. But God takes you and makes something great and glorious and wonderful with you and with all of these other parts of the body. So it's not your body, your choice. It's God's body. It's God's choice. It's God's rules, even if you don't like them and don't agree with them. But that's good because God loves you. God knows you better than you know yourself, and he has better plans for you than you have for yourself. He can accomplish so much more with you and with all the other parts of the body working together than you could ever accomplish on your own. It's a fantastic thing. So remember, on this Life Sunday, life is precious. Life is not something that should be thrown away. Life is not something that should be, that should be treated as disposable. 
life is something that's precious and should be cherished. And your life is precious and your life should be cherished. And even if you did have an abortion, even if you are responsible for euthanasia of a, of a parent or a grandparent or a relative of a, or a friend or of a child, even if you had these things in your past, this sin in your past, you're still designed to be part of the body of Christ. So repent, be forgiven, join your brothers and sisters in this body, join in the glory and the honor that God has prepared for you. Welcome you with open arms. Hey, look at that. It's time for donuts. Take care. Are you ever listening to somebody talk and they throw out a big $5 word? It doesn't contribute anything to the conversation. You're talking about something completely common, casual, whatever. But they check out this, they check out this big word, they just drop it like a right in the middle of the uh, right in the middle of the conversation. You know, maybe it's to make them seem more intelligent, you know, more more educated, more erudite. Just they know bigger words than you, and it doesn't contribute to the conversation. There are some times, however, where big words like that actually do serve a purpose and they can actually further the discussion. A word can encompass an entire an entire concept or an entire philosophy or a, th- a theological statement, for example. It can all be defined with a single word. Trinity, for example. The word Trinity isn't in the Bible, but the concept of the Trinity is explained in the Bible and the summary of that explanation is the word Trinity. Well, I am going to get you two $5 theological words, so get your $10 bill ready, because here they come. Let's get into it. Alright, so here are your two words for the day. They're not really two words, they're one and a half word. The first word is Pelagian, named after Pelagius of like the, the fifth, the early fifth century. The second word is semi-Pelagius. See, that's, that's one word because it's hyphenated. Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. These are the two words. And maybe you're familiar with them and maybe you're not. There's a lot of people who aren't going to be familiar with them, so here's what they mean. And even if you're not familiar with the word, maybe you're familiar with, with, with the, the definition. So a Pelagian is somebody who believes that they can be responsible for their own salvation, that they are responsible for their own salvation. They believe that people are good and that people can easily do, you know, do good deeds and avoid doing sins if they so desire. People can choose and act and of their own brilliance, their own strength, their own willpower, they can achieve what is necessary for their salvation. A Pelagian is one who gets to God on his own. Rather than God reaching down and bringing them up, they pull out a ladder and climb up to, and climb up to heaven to be with God. Now, a semi-Pelagian is just half that. A semi-Pelagian is somebody who says, well, I'm going to meet God halfway. God will do such and such, and I will meet him the other half of the way. You know, he'll reach out, so I have to reach out and grab his hand, you know, and, pull, pull, and he pulls me up into heaven. You know, God comes down halfway from heaven, I climb a ladder halfway up to heaven, or something like that. 
Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. And these things were condemned as heresies, as heresies by the church, like ages ago, 1600 years ago, give or take. So why are they important today? Why is it important today to understand the concepts of Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism? The reality is that today these concepts are alive and well. They're alive and well in, in, in many churches, particularly American churches. They don't go by the same, you know, Latin discourses or whatever, or, or, or Greek and Hebrew phrasing, but let me give you a few English phrases and, and see if they sound familiar to you, like something you've heard before. I have decided to follow Jesus. You have a God-shaped hole in your heart. You have to invite God into your heart. Have you invited God into your heart? Have you made a choice for Christ? How old were you when you began following Jesus? When you chose to follow Jesus? When you gave yourself to Christ? See, there are phrases like these that show up all over the, all over the place. And you're going to hear them in, in praise bands and in all kinds of chapels and churches that employ praise bands, right? Is, praise music is rife, unfortunately, with Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have made a choice. I have done this. I have done this. Me, me, me. I, 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 I. It's all me. I get credit. And there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of rational, rationale behind this, this idea. Because people are concerned about their salvation. They're concerned. They say, well, I don't really know how it works, but I want to make sure that, that, it, that it happens. I want to make sure that I'm saved. And if I just throw up my hands and say, well, it's all on God, then, then how can I be sure that I'm even really saved? Ooh, puddle. How can I be sure that I'm even really saved if it's all on God? But that's, you know, that's one of the one of the ways. The other, the other the other temptation here is to say, well, I want credit for my salvation. God doesn't get all the credit. I at least chose to follow Jesus. He may have died on the cross, but I, I acted. I accepted His gift to me. I reached out and took the hand that was offered to me. Let's go to the reading for today. I know we've gone a long way without scripture. The reading for today was from Ephesians. And it starts out with this phrase. It says, you were dead in your sin and trespass. You were dead. It's an important way to view yourself kind of as a, as a pre-Christian. As somebody without Christ, you are not, you are not active in, in seeking him. You were dead. You were dead in your trespass and sin. You are followers of the prince, prince of the air and, uh, and living basically a life of sin. You were dead. You were a corpse in your sin. Now corpses, last time I checked, don't do a lot of ladder climbing. They don't make choices to accept, to invite Jesus into their heart. They don't, they don't follow Jesus. They don't usually get up and, and follow anything on their own, let alone follow Jesus. Corpses are incapable of action. Corpses are incapable of free will and decision. Corpses are incapable of doing anything to better their own situation. But that's not the end of the story. See, you were dead in sin and trespass. You were a spiritual corpse, but, but God, but God, while you were dead in sin, came down from heaven 
became, you know, took on the form of a human to die for your sins, to die for you. You didn't do that. He did that for you. All the while you were moldering away in your spiritual grave, God came down from heaven and gave you everything. It can be a frustrating thing to kind of accept if you're used to taking care of everything on your own. But you've contributed nothing to your salvation, yet you've received everything. It's honestly better this way. Think about it. If Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism was true, then the onus would be on you to accomplish something for your salvation. And let's be honest, you're not that good of a person. I'm not either. I don't care like how strong or smart or theologically brilliant you are. You sin. I sin. If it's up to us, even to a degree, to achieve our salvation, we're going to fail. Thanks be to God that that isn't the case. Thanks be to God that he died for us and took care of everything for us on our behalf. Thanks be to God that Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, are, are still to be rejected, are contrary to scripture. Because if it was up to us, we wouldn't climb one rung up that ladder to heaven. But it's up to God. And although we did nothing, he gave us everything. You have a wonderful week. It's Pentecost and you know what that means. It's time to speak in tongues. So let's have a pop quiz. Which one of the following is speaking in tongues? Pantahemon, ha and tois uranois, hageaslete toanamasu. Option two. Shamana shamana, hamana hamana, kudabata honda, shudabata kia. Let's get into it. So on Pentecost Sunday, we read about Pentecost in the book of Acts. Coupled with this text, we have the Old Testament text of the Tower of Babel. In fact, the Tower of Babel lets us understand what exactly is going on with the speaking of tongues in Acts, and what exactly is going on with the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts. In fact, I would say that it's a mirror image, a parallel, the exact opposite of what is happening. So if you recall, uh, in Genesis, I believe 11, you have the story of the Tower of Babel. Basically, in, uh, in Genesis 9, you have Noah and his family gets off the boat, and God blesses them and says, um, be fruitful and multiply and cover the earth, right? Uh, and then the following generations, you have, you know, so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so, some, so-and-so, some, yada, 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 yada. You get this cool lineage of people, uh, and it's important for its own reason. But then you get to the Tower of Babel, just slammed right in the middle of this, of this lineage of people, this Ancestry.com. And you have this story of, of Babel, where you've got this group of people, and they're like, hey, let's go settle over here in, the, in these plains over here in this area, uh, and let's build for ourselves a city and a, and a tower on top of the city, and let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered across the earth. Now, if you remember five seconds ago when I told you in Genesis 9 that God commanded Noah and his descendants to, to be fruitful, multiply, and cover the earth, this is a direct a direct opposition to God's command. These people are sinning by deciding that they want to stay in one place 
and reject God's order to rule over the earth, to go and cover the earth, to, you know, experience the glory of his creation and, and take care of his animals and, and his land and everything like that. They are rejecting God's command. So God, seeing that they are being disobedient, says, well, I'm going to go down from heaven. I'm going to take a look at this tower that they're building. So he goes and he does that. He gets down to their tower and he says, you know, these guys are working together and there's, there's no end to what they'll accomplish. So I'm going to confuse their languages. So he does that. He confuses the languages of these, of these people, these people who are all one language group, all one, all one ethnicity, whatever. They all speak one language, it says. They're all one people. He confuses them and scatters them over the earth. They stop building, of course, and he's like, all right, you guys don't want to scatter all over the earth on your own? You don't want to do what you're told? Fine, I'll do it myself. So he comes down, he makes them start speaking Chinese and, 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 and German and Spanish, and, you know, whatever languages they had back then. Uh, Mesopotamia, well, they didn't even have Mesopotamia yet. Well, so he makes them speak all these different languages and he scatters them all over the earth. So he, he accomplishes what he told them to do in the first place. Um, so he does this, and, uh, and as a result, we have this diversity of languages that we experience today. Now, we do have some blessings that have come from a division of languages. We have different, you know, cultures and songs and, and cool stuff like that. But the reality is that this division of languages, this, this, this confusion of languages is really a curse. It's really the consequences for sin. Because of this, now we had to translate the Bible from Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek into English. We had to... Uh, uh, we have to equip missionaries to speak the local dialect of the people that they're talking to. Um, because of this, maybe when you're talking to somebody and you're trying to share the gospel with them, they don't understand you. And that's one less person that you can share God's gospel with because of that confusion of language. Um, so anyways, yeah, so you've got this confusion of languages and it is ultimately, uh, it is ultimately the consequences of sin. And it causes more damage than, you know, than the benefits it has. So, because of people joining together to oppose God, God creates confusion of language. He disperses people. He divides them by their languages. Now, Pentecost is the exact opposite of that. Pentecost is a reversal of that. Pentecost is when God brings together these people of different languages and different groups. Um, and what you have is you have, you have all the disciples are, are meeting together. And they're, they're, they're celebrating this Jewish feast that happened 50 days after the Passover. And the feast is a celebration of the harvest, and it's also, it's also a celebration of the Ten Commandments being given to Moses. So these people from all around the world, all these different places, are celebrating together. And there's a rushing wind, and tongues like fire appear over the heads of the, of the disciples, and they start, speaking, uh, they start speaking in other languages. And the Holy Spirit is present, and they're speaking in languages as the Holy Spirit directs them, speaking in other languages. So everybody hears... The gospel being proclaimed in his own language. Now, if you remember at the very beginning of the video, I said something maybe you didn't understand, and then I said something you definitely didn't understand. The first thing I said was the beginning of the Lord's Prayer in Greek, and I know I probably mispronounced some of the words, but what are you going to do about it, huh? And the second thing was gibberish. The second thing was what a lot of people think when they hear speak in tongues. Just say, hamana, hamana, shamana, shamana. You know, like I said, uh, I stole this from Roseboro. Should have bought a Honda, could have bought a Kia. You know, it's people making up noises and pretending like this is them speaking in another language. And even if they were speaking in another language, nobody understands what they're saying in the first place. This is the exact opposite of what happens at Pentecost. At Pentecost, everybody is hearing the gospel in their mother tongue. Nobody is hearing shamana, 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 shamana. And 
being confused, like, what's, what's going on? What's being said? I don't know. I don't understand. Can you? That's what happens at Babel. What's happening when you're shamana shamaning is you're babbling. You are reenacting the consequences for sin that God poured out on these, on these sinful people at, at the Tower of Babel. Now, at Pentecost, what happened was this miraculous event where all these people from these different countries were able to hear God's gospel proclaimed to them. And this is, I mean, and if you read the reading for today, it ends on this really beautiful note where it reminds us that everybody, uh, everybody who trusts in the Lord, everybody who puts their faith in Christ will be saved. This is that message that can bring these divisions. Now, obviously, there's going to be a lot of divisions in terms of languages and ethnicities and cultures and all kinds of different things going on that, that separate people around the world. But that gospel of Christ is the thing which unifies it. The thing which unifies us all is the blood of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. So Pentecost is, is the unity moment. Pentecost is the moment where God demonstrates that he's bringing the entire world together. The entire world that was previously divided is now being brought together in the gospel of Christ. It's a reversal of the Tower of Babel. And it's something that we are happy to celebrate today. Because that God died for you and God died for me. And the whole world God died for. So they need to be, they need to know. Somebody needs to tell them. So whether you can miraculously speak in other languages or whether you study really, really hard and you, and you pick up another language, use that to spread the gospel. Use that to unite the world. All different kinds of people in Christ's love, in Christ's forgiveness. You take care and God bless. Shaman Shaman.